there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. Only rule I was given, because I was working for the resort, of course, not for a network, was we do not say the word rain. Like, it really got to the heart of what all jobs we don't appreciate is, which is go in and bleed for us and we'll give you a pittance. When I was still working, like, regular jobs, it was like my secret life, you know, the book and time I was carving out for myself. In a way, you know, sometimes I miss that. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Mudgy Readers Festival. This session is a writer's work, supported by Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales. Produced by Kel Butler and Pamela Cook from the Rights for Women podcast. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Wiradjuri people who are the traditional owners of the land. And I'd like to pay respects to Elders, both past and present, of the Wiradjuri Nation and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians. Hello everyone, good afternoon. My name is Summer Land and I'm thrilled to host this session today. As someone who's worked as a nanny, babysitter, fitness instructor, footwear marketer, craft brewery marketer, real estate agent, mom... I know I don't get paid for it, but I still like it was a job. Um, Kids, fashion, copywriter, like so many things. I really appreciate, oh, also a writer. I really appreciate hearing people's jobs before they kind of became who they wanted to be and during and hearing about the juggle. And I really like hearing about the really funny ones. I think James (laughs) has one of those. So today I'm joined with Kate Wilde who is a Walkley Award-winning investigative journalist and the author of Waiting for Elijah. (laughs) We have Inga Simpson, who's the author of Mr. Wig, Nest, and Where the Trees Were. Her latest book is Understory, a memoir about her love of Australian nature and life with trees. And of course, James Colley, who is a young Walkley-nominated satirist with a background in physics and science communication and a passion for comedic journalism. Woohoo! Give it up, James! <laughs> All right, so I think it would be really fun to hear what you wanted to be when you grew up as a child. So you can be five, what you wanted to be, 13, just... What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Let's kick it off down at the end, Inga. Lucky me. Um, 11 years old, a writer um, or a spy. (laughs) But my parents told me that I couldn't be a writer, that that wasn't a thing, it wasn't a job, you didn't get paid for it, which is not entirely untrue. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, so it took me a little while to come back around to that. The spy they didn't discourage me from. Like, that makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> Are you a spy? No. Oh. That's what a spy would say. Exactly. Um, what about you, Kate? Um, so at about six, I wanted to be a ballerina or an actor, and I was also told that that was not a career option. Um, by the time I hit about 12 or 13, I thought I was going to be a dog breeder and trainer. I was going to breed and train sheep dogs. Yeah. Uh, Socceroos captain, um, 
But I would settle for Australian cricket team captain. Um, and I still haven't completely given up on the, either of those dreams. And I hear there are some openings on the Australian team. <laughs> so if they're looking for someone, I'm right here. All right. So you guys were pretty like discouraged with, with what you initially wanted to be. So what did you end up doing? Did you go to school for something or what like first piqued your interest? What did you pursue? I applied for one of the earliest writing courses in this country. Um, so we're talking 87, 88. Uh, the University of Canberra offered a professional writing course and I applied for it and got in out of high school and didn't go. I chickened out and so I went off and did a Bachelor of Arts at ANU, you know, lots of reading, which is a good education for a writer. And then I enrolled in a, a master's or a grad dip or something in professional writing, the same course. And that first year that only took 15 people or something, 15 or 20 people in the, in the whole country and I got in and I didn't take it. So the second round I applied, got in and I went to one class and chickened out. What were you so afraid of? Um, I was extremely shy. I'm a real, used to be a real introvert before someone gave me a microphone. Um, <laughs> and I just couldn't imagine, and I was very young. I was probably a year and a half younger than most people in the undergraduate year that I went. And they just all seemed so ballsy, you know, that, and the idea of walking up to someone's, because it was professional writing, not just creative writing, so journalism, um, all aspects of journalism and I soon realised, you know, my idea of being a photojournalist for National Geographic, maybe that was a little unrealistic. I would have to do other things first. And the idea of, you know, interviewing people and fronting up and doing, I just couldn't imagine it. Yeah. But probably I was also scared, you know, of what if I couldn't write or... Yeah. What you if my share a lot was... of work with people and it's, you feel vulnerable or... Well... I don't know, it's only something I see looking back that when I finally did get published, there was a lot of really mixed emotions and maybe, yeah, the fear of failing at the thing I most wanted to do kept me from it for, you know, another 25 years. Yeah, wow. What about you, Kate? I really relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had decided by the time I think I hit about year 11, I decided that I probably wanted to be a journalist, partly because there was a girl who was who had been in Year 12 when I was in Year 7, who I really admired, who I thought was very glamorous and interesting and amazing and she had gone off to be a journalist, I think for Clio magazine. Um, and I thought that was pretty awesome. Uh, so that was one thing that made me think that maybe being a journalist would be a good idea. And then the ABC's Compass program, their religious program, came to my Catholic girls' high school when I was in year 12 and I was school captain and we had a very um, feminist principal, a nun, who had asked me to do the sermon at that year's end of school mass and I did the sermon. Of course, Compass thought that that was pretty cool that a young girl was getting to do the sermon at a Catholic girls' school and so I got interviewed by the journalist and I thought her job looked pretty amazing. So by then I had decided probably I wanted to be a journalist but for some reason when I was applying to uni, which I didn't understand university at all because only one person in my family, my older sister, by 12 months had ever been to university so I didn't know what it was really about, I applied, I think five subjects were to study art history and theory and one was to study journalism and whichever one I got offered first I decided I would take and I got offered the journalism course. So that's what I studied. Take that art history. <laughs> You're lost. 
Um, I was starting a, as a, a stand-up when I was uh, 15. I was living up in the, like, uh, Blue Mountains and there wasn't, there wasn't comedy around. So to do stand-up to start out, you would take a two-hour train into the city, go to, like, a pub in Glebe, perform for five minutes. You're starting out, so die horribly like don't get a single laugh for the whole run then have a two-hour train ride back to really think about where you messed up and which was helpful in some way because I'd always have a new set by the time I was back and then when it time came to uni it was quite similarly uh no one from my family had ever been to university before and also I had this like this anxiety of I, I had grown up in you know, you people would know very well how politicized Western Sydney is as idea. So I thought that, like, if I go to the city, the city kids are going to know more than me and I'll be making a fool of myself. And I was making a fool of myself, but for different reasons. And um, I end up, I want to apply for journalism. And I type the word journalism into the course search. And that is not how you find journalism. It's called media and communications. But I did not know that. So the no journalism courses came up. So I just did a physics degree <laughs> that I have and don't use. But I can really calculate how my hex debt will grow. So it's got, it's got applications. Oh, that's so good. Okay, so you went through uni. You did your courses. You got the jobs you wanted straight away. <laughs> what did, what is your job life look like now? Did you like does the role that you have or the role that you first had look like what you thought it would? Oh God, no! All total accidents, every single one. I did um, fourteen, seventeen years. I get confused between how long I lived in Canberra and how many government jobs I had. But um, I worked for government for a very long time. At least fourteen years, I worked for federal government. The first job I had was winding film by hand at the National Film and Sound Archive. I landed a job after an honours degree in English literature and German literature. I, I wound film and glued bits back together. Um, I was a technician. Um, but it was a great job and a great environment. I worked uh, in intelligence. I worked in the registry. Sure you did. I had a hot shit clearance. I no could one see everything. It. But I did nothing except deliver documents and pull people off planes. <laughs> so the fantasy was almost exercised. Yeah, I worked in Parliament House. I worked for the Commonwealth Ombudsman. You know, until finally it came around, I was climbing the ladder, sort of middle management, and I went for a promotion that I'd been groomed for, like the head of um, the Queensland branch of the Commonwealth Ombudsman. <laughs> And I'd been acting in the job for nine months. You know, that's always horrible to go and apply for the job you've been doing. Um, I didn't get it. And I thought my throat was cut. Like, this is what I wanted to do my whole life. Um, not noticing that I was really miserable. And, and I kind of chucked a bit of a tantrum. In the post-interview counselling, <laughs> they suggested I study some law. Because I was kind of a generalist, like a researcher and a professional writer. But, um, you know, I could write very persuasive letters. Um, and can, you know, hide my rage. Um, use a lot of passive voice, which I had to unlearn later in life. Um, I was told to go and study some law. And I went looking through the handbook. And I looked at all these administrative law subjects and thought, Really? After a full day at work in the office, I'm going to pay thousands of dollars to go along and learn this crap. 
and I kept looking through, this was in the day of physical handbooks, went looking and I found creative writing up the back with all the, you know, non-vocational courses. And um, I thought, well, well, why not? Why not? I've got long service, six months. I'm going to enrol in this and um, see what happens. Yeah. And happily ever after. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so far, so good. Yeah. Uh, Kate? Uh, so before I got into the journalism course, but I didn't accept my position straight away. I wanted to have a gap year. And so my first ever job was as a florist, <laughs> uh, which I got Beautiful. because my babysitter from my teen, you know, younger years, who was another country girl, I grew up. Um, in around Warren, northwest, and she had moved to the city to nanny the children of the florist, this very fabulous, fancy florist in Double Bay, and they were looking for some extra staff, and so I got a job as a florist, and I learnt how to make beautiful arrangements and like big buckets of water. So that was my first job, <laughs> and then uh, my first job out of uni as a journalist, I actually found it really hard to get work straight away. And I think the first paid job I had was working as the sort of semi-public relations officer for the, uh, who runs it, the World Vision, you know when you starve yourself for a couple of days? The 40-hour oh, famine. The 40-hour famine. famine, which I now, being a little bit older, have huge ethical problems <laughs> with. But at the time I needed a job. Um, so... I, I think that was my first six weeks con- six week contract was as the PR manager for New South Wales for the 40-hour famine, um, after which I was given my first really big break as the ski reporter at the Threadbow Ski Resort. No way. Where I learned to they ski. They always choose really attractive girls for that. <laughs> I can't explain it somewhere, but I got the job <laughs> like, and, I was, and I learned to ski and I didn't necessarily learn how to be a journalist, but I, I learned some of the skills maybe of appearing in front of a camera. Yeah. Did you have to know like about snow conditions or you just like wing it on the day? Like did you Google? The like- only rule I was given because I was working for the resort, of course, not for a network, was we do not say the word rain. <laughs> Perfect. It's moist yeah. outside. So journalism by omission, I think. There's some liquid snow falling. <laughs> That's right. Precipitation expected on the higher slopes. <laughs> All right, your turn. Um, I was, uh, like, as I left uni, I had um, been working as a comic this whole time. I kind of, I picked the university I did because it was closest to open mic comedy rooms, which is a terrible way to play in your future. Um but uh, I was lucky enough that, um, you know, I had work jobs, I'm sure we'll get into, but like all the way through this, like Dish Piggy, and I worked at the aquarium for a while and a whole bunch of other things. Um, but um, then once I, I was lucky enough, like I finished up the physics degree and it was kind of clear I wasn't going to be Isaac Newton. Like I think we could <laughs> all agree. So I wasn't going to pursue that any further. And um, I had already been writing for a group called Irrational Fear, who used to have a partnership with The Guardian and was run under um, Dan Illick, who is currently running the show Tonightly. Uh, and I had that was my first job. He like We had done political comedy together. I'd helped him write for this show a little bit, and he gave me a few spots doing that. And then um, I found out, I got a call that was from uh, Charlie Pickering, 
and it was because he was putting on his new show and Andrew Denton had recommended me who I had only met once in my life and I still have no idea how that happened. <laughs> but then I kind of moved from the weekly to Gruen back and forth since then. But like it was, a, I have like a, a mess, a big pile of I don't know what the hell I'm doing and then a weirdly smooth path since then. Yeah. So I can only assume there's another bump cut. I know how stories work now. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that was one of my questions was I feel like for a second there I like got to be a full-time writer and then I needed bedrooms for my children and like got in really deep with the house was like, "Oh, I think I need full-time work." And I've had to go back to that. Have you ever had to go back and do a job that wasn't necessarily something you wanted to do to facilitate your dream? Not yet. <laughs> um I mean, I guess because the benefit of having avoiding it for so long and having a career beforehand, I sort of set myself up to an extent. Yeah. Um, yeah, not yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a juggling act, isn't it? And uh, the uncertainty isn't, you know, a big part of it. Things can change um, at any time. So yeah. living, I'm actually without a mortgage at the moment, which is liberating for a writer. Um, yeah. So... Um, not that I paid it off or anything. I just I don't own anything. But um, <laughs> I'm living in my mother's holiday house. Um, so adjusting expectations was a yeah. You know, just stepping off that laddering business of wanting to go up it and accumulate assets and, and debt and all of that. I just stepped out of that, which you know was a wonderful thing to yeah, do. You need a mentee. I'm totally your girl. <laughs> All right. What about you guys? Any like steps back, steps forward, or another way? A, a thing that I'm interested in knowing is: Have you ever had to like turn down a job? I feel you have you to. Liked? You kind of have to turn down, particularly like with uh, comedy. It's uh, like TV comedy, particularly have little seasons. You have to, to some degree, pick a horse. Like I'm going to work on this show for a bit, or I'll go over to this side. It's almost like joining a football team for a season, that kind of deal. There's both like the comedy world and then the world I did to sustain that. So I have like you know a long line of while doing stand up gigs at night, you know, um, dish picking during the day, or you know, and editing a student newspaper, doing whatever. Finding just new and remarkable ways to con the University of Sydney Union out of giving us like $50 to run a bingo night or whatever, anything we could do to get rent money, really. That was our um, setup. And like, so luckily I haven't had to, um, I haven't had to go back to that too much. But even in that, I think there's, there's jobs I've said no to, but more focused in my mind are the jobs that I absolutely should have said no to but was like it'll be good for your career so I'll do it anyway and end up doing things like uh I performed a step do you remember the and you shouldn't but the reality tv show The Shire yeah so <laughs> story time they want to set up a fake comedy show within The Shire and they needed acts so they booked me to do stand-up on the Shire. And they had also, it's a reality show, so they, the producers had set up someone to heckle, but hadn't told me. And I wasn't already, like, when you're doing stand-up for the Shire, you're not in a good place in your psyche. So when someone started shouting at me while I was doing it, I kind of let loose. I gave them 10 minutes of unusable footage. <laughs> so more of that. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's amazing. All right, so would you describe that as your least favorite job? No, that'll be Vampire Club. Um, 
Vampire Club was uh, during uni, again, during uni to find any way to pay rent because I want to be a comedian. We used to go to Sydney University medical testing facilities. And if you sold your blood, like, so like, <laughs> look, this is going to sound like a terrible idea. And it is. If you, if you sold, like, you would, they'll give you $30 and you would, like, prick yourself with a needle, lean into a cup, they test you for allergies. But you get $30 and a free breakfast. Just five days. That. Five days, that's breakfast and, like, half of Sydney rent paid. <laughs> like, it was a pretty good system, but it was, like, it really got to the heart of what all jobs we don't appreciate is, which is go in and bleed for us and we'll give you a pittance. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Kate? What was your least favourite job? And you can go back to, like, yeah. Um... I think, so I worked, I chose to work as a freelance journalist for a very long time. I still ended up working for the ABC a lot within that because there were there have been long periods where the ABC cannot afford to put people on but they can afford to put you on a six-week contract and then you have a week off and then you have another six weeks contract. So I did a lot of that. But a freelancing job which was not for the ABC, which is the only program I've ever asked not to have my name included in the credits was made by an independent production company and it was the the basis of it was getting this was before cooking shows were ubiquitous getting opera singers to um take the host into the kitchen and cook their favorite dish with them and this was back in the very early 2000s what i wasn't told when i was asked to come on and research this program and being a researcher your job is to is to talk to the talent, to the opera singers and and check out what their, you know, what's the dish going to be and what opera would they like to talk about and maybe would they like to sing a song while they're cooking and what would that be. What I wasn't told by the producers was that each of the opera singers were, had been promised that they would be paid somewhere between twenty dollars and $30,000 for their appearance <sighs> but none of these contracts had been signed and so I rang opera singers who are known for being fairly sensitive to say okay so you know at the age of 22 or something what would you like to cook and what would you like to sing and was generally greeted with a tirade of where's my contract and where's my $30,000 and it was quite a it was a very very unprofessional production yeah Yeah, that would be remains my least favorite project yeah I don't blame you it sounds like a terrible show. <laughs> it, I don't know if it ever went to air and I don't really want to know. Yeah. As long as my name was not on the credits, I don't mind. I don't know. Like That just makes me feel like I can do anything I want. I'm, like, not afraid to pitch any idea. Yeah, that's such a, like, spin a raffle wheel and be like, okay, we're cooking with an opera singer. Why not? Yeah. All right, Inga. Least favourite. Least favourite. The very last real job I had. So I have had to go back. This was a going back and a least favourite. I had to go back. I took a, I can't remember if it was five or 11 months. Um, it felt like five years at the Department of Education Queensland to um, as kind of like a web writer, whatever that is. And the job, the task, the brief was to redesign their website. Are you also a web designer? Hey? Are you also a web designer? No. It was just the content, like not doing all the content. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have my own websites and things. I can do some of it. But, yeah, not the tech stuff, just the text. They had this problem with conveying information to the public. You know, they they couldn't understand that the website was to 
for parents mm. and um, community people to, to get information about the system and different options in schools and subjects and the transition to the Australian curriculum was happening at that time. So it was highly politicised in Queensland anyway. Um, did all this work. It was sort of weird and nebulous and the woman, lovely woman who had um, hired me and saved my life, my financial life really, she left and uh, this uh, monster appeared in her place. <laughs> and um, after all that work at the end, you know, the, no feedback, no communication, no sitting down and nutting stuff out, I just tried to really simplify it and use everyday speak and, you know, instead of saying exemplar, can't you just say example? You know, things, little things like that. It didn't take any real writing skill, just common sense. But the monster invited me into her office and um, just shredded me. And at that time, Mr. Wig had already been published and, you know, I thought I was pretty hot shit <laughs> and um, could maybe write. You know, and I'm, I was in my late 30s. And she just said, oh, well, we can't use this. And I've spent months negotiating with all the different arms of, and special areas of the department. It's pretty demoralising. Talking to English teachers who don't confuse surrealism with speculative fiction and you worry about the, you know, I had stepkids in school, you worry about their future. Um, yeah, but she said, yeah, this writing, it doesn't really cut it. It just doesn't cut the mustard. And um, I don't, I'm not the most tolerant of people. <laughs> I have a pretty short fuse and I just got up and walked out and did not go back. You had like the Jerry Maguire moment. You like take the goldfish. Who's coming with me? I didn't snatch anything on the way out. I just went right. That's it. Back out to the area and so I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. Like Good what a waste you. of everyone's time. Yeah. You know, and taxpayers' money. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. but no communication about what the problem. Yeah. It's was. really. Yeah. It yeah. just feels like a waste. Yeah. And I just thought, lady, I'm going back out there to write another book. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff this. Yeah. I love it that like writing a book it seems easier than that. <laughs> definitely was yeah definitely can we go back to your aquarium job i just like i meant to like pick back on that immediately <laughs> yep uh that was uh during university it was one of the easier ones because it was a job designed to be staffed by hungover backpackers so like there was a designated darkest area of the aquarium that they could spend an hour or two if it was a little dusty um what we were doing were um you've you will have dealt with this anytime you visit the major landmark you know those are uh, people who take your photo for no good reason as you're walking in and then tried yeah now you've all turned on me because that's what i was doing oh, no. you take your photo as they come in you try and sell it as they go back the photo's bad you know it's bad and it's like 45 dollars. oh my god yes absolutely the only the the good part of that gig, uh, when uh, we had we had high school groups touring around and um, like checking out the aquarium, and I could just lie to them, and that was a dream. I told them that um, dugongs are magnetic, <laughs> and and they didn't know it, but they bought a magnet from like the little gift shop, like a dollar magnet, and put it up to the tank. And there's not that far for the dugong to go, so eventually it comes back towards the magnet. And we have 30 kids who now will believe for the rest of their lives that dugongs are magnetic. Oh, you're terrible. And we're an agent of chaos. Oh, that's so good. Great material. Though. I know. Sorry, so just speaking of material, I, I write memoirs, so all of my crazy jobs, like being like a nude figure drawing model in the town of Mudgee, which I don't know why I thought that could fly. <laughs> 
and I, I just thought I could like turn and face a wall, but it was a full circle around. <laughs> like there was nowhere to hide, but like it gives me material for like the newspaper column I write and for the books. How does your work shape your writing? Can we, and obviously, do you want to start this way and work it back or like start in the middle? Sure, Someone start talking. It affects a lot, obviously. And I like a major part of, I think, evolution I went under as a stand-up is realizing that I don't have to make bad life choices because I've got a show to fill. And like, that's a real turning point. Realize I shouldn't do this thing that I'll hate and is awful because I've got 10 minutes of a show in a month and I don't know what to say. Uh, so be getting some confidence in yourself to be able to do that is uh, really useful. Um, but yeah, it, but it certainly does inform. Like, uh, particularly uh, stand up, you're a lot of the time you're talking about your own life, you're talking about things you've been through. And more than anything else, that stuff also helps you empathize like when you're in the like tv studio writing about like jokes about people's lives and things like that you have to remember like you know i have to remember my growing up around penrith and stuff like that that like this is who i want to talk to and this is like you can't forget that part of your life because you want you were pushing for this area you can't like get where you want to go and then abandon everything behind you. You have to keep drawing on it because otherwise you're not going to be the person you wanted to be. Yeah. Uh, well, my book came, uh, the book that I wrote, Waiting for Elijah, comes directly from my working life. So my book is is about a young 24-year-old boy, young man from the Wee-Waw, Narrabri area who was fatally shot by a police officer in a back lane in Armidale, New South Wales, in 2009. And I first worked on the story when I was a researcher at Four Corners. So that's how I came across the story. And I got to know some of the details of Elijah's shooting. I got to know his family through my job at Four Corners and through doing that story. I stayed in touch with them after I then went on maternity leave about, well, before the program even went to air, I went on maternity leave to have my daughter who is sitting down the back, who's now eight and a half years old. Um, And the book came out in June, so it's been quite a long birth for the book. Um, I stayed in contact with the Holcomb family and then I then followed Elijah's story through the legal process for five years, um, trying to make sense of what had happened to him from his perspective, from the police officer's perspective, the hospital staff's perspective, societal perspective. So my working life as a journalist... um, gave me the story of the book that I wrote and I think is likely to give me the story of the next book that I write because I'm really interested in the way that um, people in real life deal with very uh, situations that to to most of us are unimaginable because I think in a lot of ways it's more interesting and meaningful than anything that I could possibly have the capacity to make up. Yeah, look, all of those weird jobs I had... um end up in my books <laughs> in, in various ways. Um, I wrote a book called Where the Trees Were and one of the characters in that just happened to work for an intelligence agency in Canberra so that I could use all the weird information. The very first intelligence report I read uh, and kind of produced, printed, was about the Patagonian toothfish. Have you, has anyone seen pictures of them? It's the ugliest fish you've ever seen. It's, uh, like it's really blobby. Like, yeah, yeah, deep sea Antarctic waters fish, highly contested because, of course, all the Antarctic waters are d- divided up between Russia and Australia. But I don't even know who. Um, America would be there, right? So I worked that into a novel, you know. Things just pop up. So, yeah, I guess I'm glad in some ways I took my time getting around to writing and there's, you know, more material 
to draw on um, and things I thought I'd forgotten that just will pop up again. Yeah. Um, I, all of your stories and books, I mean, I would be obscenely proud to have them, but do you have any particular work moments that you're very, like, really proud of or? Uh, there are a few. Uh, I think, like, um, you know, our first book, uh, uh, which I put out last year, was like a very big, it, it meant a lot to me that, um, so my parents had always been incredibly supportive of me throughout this. Like my my dad's a RAF guy, my mom's a nurse. Like when I was saying, I want to do stand up for a living, they're like, do you mean the RAF? Um, <laughs> but then um, they they were always very supportive and they would come along and back me. And, um, and they were always very proud, but it's also a very, hard industry to understand so when they could when I could see you know my mum and dad and my nan holding a copy of a book in their heads and they like can fathom this is what a book is this means something that really meant the world to me yeah writing writing my first book has been a really proud moment because I know that I've given something to Elijah's family they have said to me since reading the book now we can take this story and put it down outside of ourselves. We don't feel like we're the only ones carrying it around anymore. Mm. And that's a very special thing to be able to give to someone. I'm also proud of it because I feel like I've, I used writing the book to figure out a lot of things about my own life and my own family life. And I tried to share those in a way that I hoped would be useful to other people, particularly other people living in rural areas who maybe are dealing with mental health issues in their own family. Um, and I'm proud that I've received a lot of feedback since the book's gone out of people saying, you know, this book has helped me to start that conversation in my own family and even extended members of my family, my aunts and uncles and cousins who've written to me and said, oh, yeah, you know that thing you described, us too, mm. and yet no one in my family has ever spoken to each other about that stuff before. So I guess I'm proud of that in a way because I feel like it's done something useful for someone other than just me yeah did you always want to write a book or was it Elijah's story that you were like all of a sudden I think that this needs I always wanted to write a book from being a very young kid I was the kid who in primary school was sent on the writers camps and I ran away to Melbourne in my mid-20s to write the great Australian novel and (laughs) never got past the 10th page um and then I think I just sort of made the decision a little bit like you not turning up to the creative writing classes. I just sort of decided maybe that was a childhood dream or a teen, teenage dream I had that was one of those things I always thought I was capable of, but actually I was kidding myself. Um, and then when Elijah's story came along and the time in my life at which it came along was just the right time to have a go at it and I felt like it was the time to to find out whether or not I could do it and whether... And to face up to whether or not I was capable of it and I just needed to know at that stage, could I write a book or couldn't I? And if I couldn't, now was the time to face up to that fact. It's interesting that you've spoken about, um, you spoke about writing it for someone else as well. That Maybe that freed you up. It wasn't about you. It was... I think definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, my first book, Mr. Wig, being published, similar things. My, you know, mother being so proud of that and holding it and all of her book club people really liking it. I mean, yeah. really I did write that book from, you know, wrote a book that my mother would like. Um, the things I'd written before that she certainly didn't. Um, yeah. You know, it was a book that came to me as well more, more organically than that. And a lot of people have very warm responses to that book um some lovely people in today's audience came up before the session 
to to mention that they'd read the book and and how much they enjoyed him, Mr. Wig. So it's almost like I made a person. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of those responses are really, you know, that's why you do it, I guess, to reach people and yeah. um, share a story with someone. Yeah. So. Initially, when we talked about how when you said you want to be writers and your parents would be like, good luck making money, did you did you guys ever have mentors or just people that you worked with that helped guide you, advised you? Um, yeah, absolutely for comedy. It's uh, particularly, and still to this day, like um, I'm lucky enough to uh, write on Gruen a lot of the time and the real, the real advantage of doing that is you have Will Anderson who has been the nation's best comedian for decades. And he really takes, like, the time to work you through things of why something works, why something doesn't. It's like taking an internship every week, and it's so useful to me. Like, even times when, you know, we need to start filming in half an hour, and we don't have a punchline for this joke, and he knows what it should be, but he's waiting for you to figure it out. Oh. <laughs> the pressure's on. It's, it's, I love it's, that. It's really remarkable, and it's also something that um, he is under no obligation to do and no one would notice if he didn't but does to just contribute and um he will also message me after this asking to scrub this recording from the podcast <laughs> well can, can i add to this so that he doesn't i went on a public speaking competition with will when i finished year 12 we were both in the lions club youth of the year and we traveled around the country together he and i and four other all of us very gawky teenagers and will was very mean to me <laughs> So that will that will let him <laughs> give him hell. I take back everything I said. All right, anyone who was really nice to you in life? I, I have had wonderful mentors throughout my journalistic life. I have had amazing, generous, thoughtful, ethical journalists who have taught me by example that you don't have to be tough. You don't have to put your foot in the door. You don't have to be an a-hole to be a good journalist and I think that's one of the most important lessons you need to learn as a young journalist is that you don't have to be tough and mean, that actually being just a decent human being and communicating with people in an empathetic, normal way is okay and is actually going to get you a better story and, and give a better story to the community than sticking your foot in the door and that's something that I have taken with me into my writing life is that I've you know, started writing in middle age and at a point where I think I can take that sort of advice right into my bones and just trust it when I'm sitting in my room by myself that I don't have to ask the nasty question or write the nasty thing mm. for the for the story to give something useful. Yeah. You should have come and spoke at the first class in that professional writing. <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> you wouldn't have heard her. You didn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I enrolled in a PhD in creative writing in the end because for the mentor sort of um, it was like an apprenticeship to a more established writer and, and, you know, that was a really important relationship, taught me a lot about not just writing sentences but the process of developing the crappy first draft and into a book and someone going through all of those steps with me was the most valuable thing I ever did, um, you know, for my writing. But, yeah, within the writing community, you know, it is a lovely supportive community in the main, um, to your face anyway. But, you know, I had a lot of, in the Brisbane writing community to which I was attached, a lot of, you know, great mentors who just looked up, you know, kept an eye out at your first event or at your first panel session or whatever, just supportive words, a few little bits of advice. 
it's tremendously important. You know, it's such a big thing to put yourself out there in this way. So I think the mentorship model for teaching any creative endeavour is really important. You were sounded a bit more formal through the program, but did you guys approach people and say, like, will you be my mentor? And it just kind of naturally happened with who you worked with? Just naturally happened in the in the jobs that I was in. I was often the young... I, I worked at Four Corners, which was the main place I picked up mentors um, sort of twice in my life, once in my very early 20s, when I really shouldn't have been there. I was far too young and terrified to really fit in but people were very kind to me and um and I learned a lot in that and then I came back sort of eight or nine years later when I had my big girl pants on and I knew a bit more about the world and um this is the good thing about people who are good at their perfection profession is that they're not worried about other people also being good at their profession so they will be kind and generous and reach out towards people who they think have something to offer without being threatened and I was lucky to benefit from the generous kind fantastic people above me at the ABC for years. I feel the same way. And, um, yeah, I, I did this particularly like my first show in telly was uh, The Weekly, which was down in Melbourne. I had never been to Melbourne before when I got the job. And so um, both like the team was so talented and assured that they, they, like someone else coming up wasn't competition for them. They were excited for it. It makes the show better. And also they had one eye to just keeping this kid alive that has showed up in Melbourne with, like, one jacket that's too thin. <laughs> so I, I luckily got, like, mentorship and also just keeping me in the office and warm. Uh, well, we're, we're almost getting to that last 15 minutes and we'll open it up for questions. But if there's any writers in the room, do you have any advice for aspiring writers who might have a day job right now and kind of dipping their toes into the writing world and you take a lot of pressure off yourself the creative part of your life and your writing if you don't have to rely on it for a living so don't feel like you have to you know cut yourself off and go and live in a shack in the woods for two years or something to pump out that novel um you can little ways around that is really important that you're not depend you know I was in a position for various reasons for a couple of years of my life where I was dependent on it, on writing for my income in fairly difficult circumstances and, you know, that's one of the reasons I've pumped out uh, four books in five years, um, which was too much and I'm quite spent from that but it was also quite stressful. You know, you're not in your best creative space if you're worrying about the very small checks you get from your publisher. Yeah. Um, I would say... Three things. One, the crappy first draft is a blessing. Just write it and finish it. Finish it. It took me seven years to finish it. And the minute I finished it, a lot of things became clear that couldn't have become clear until I wrote the last word. So whatever you do, finish the first draft and that will deliver a whole lot of answers to questions that you feel are still blurry in the rest of the manuscript. Um, that's one. Um, let the story take its own time. I fretted the entire time that I was writing a larger story that by the time I got it published, it was going to be too late. It was going to be five years, six years after Elijah's death. No one would care anymore. And actually in the five or six years it took for his case to go through the legal process a whole lot of other things happened in life, in the world, in society 
that allowed parts of the story that were really important to reveal themselves and to emerge and to happen. And if those things hadn't happened, the story would not have been as rich at the end. And so some stories have their own life and they have their own integrity and sometimes as much as you hit your head against the brick wall trying to get them out, they know it's not time yet and sometimes you just have to be really patient and sit with them. And also don't necessarily go and lock yourself in a cabin in the woods to get your story finished believing that you have to sacrifice yourself to the work because isolation is not always the healthiest thing for a writer to have. That's right. It's not. You need um, a community around you supporting you and um, to get advice from. You're not born knowing how to do it, I tell you. Mm. I must be getting tired. I really (laughs) am a morning person. The thing I was going to say earlier was that I wrote my first book which no one talks about. Everyone says Mr. Wigg is my first book. It's not. I had a um, detective novel published in the States. Spy. Spy. <laughs> it, is, it is a spy slash detective. She's a former spy. Um, this is how we live out our fantasies, <laughs> writing stories. But I wrote that book, which was my PhD novel. I wrote it an hour a day, Monday to Friday. So I would get up, I'd go to the gym, walk back to my apartment have breakfast, write for 55 minutes at my desk and mostly produce a 1,000 words in those 55 minutes. And then I would have a shower, get on the bus and go to work and do a full day's work. And I was doing my PhD. So it doesn't actually require... You don't have to sit there all day writing. That isn't how it works. When I took long service leave and was confronted with six months at home, by 9 o'clock in the morning, (laughs) I'd be looking in the fridge, cleaning out a cupboard... You know, I was done, you know, an hour and a half, two hours. I still write like that. My new writing, there's, I can't just do that all day. So it doesn't, you don't have to quit the day job <laughs> necessarily to just make time for yourself, give yourself permission to carve out even half an hour a day yeah. and just keep doing it. There's something I think about like um, I'm a, like a very, very slow jogger and there's always this line that a friend told me once that goes around my head of you're lapping everyone on the couch. And so, like, it doesn't matter how much you're putting on the page, that you're putting something there, you're working towards where you're going. You don't need to set yourself any kind of, I'm a failure if I haven't failed this amount by this time. You're, you're on the process. It can take some time. Um, but my favourite bit of advice and the one I think about the most is uh, prove you're the worst writer in the world, which is like when you're staring at a blank page and every sentence you put down you hate and you think I am the worst writer in the world, prove it write the worst novel this world has ever seen and then when you come back and look at the draft in the cold light of day you'll be like oh there are about two paragraphs here i don't hate and then you get rid of all the rest and start again on those two and you keep proving it until you have a book i love that you guys have been amazing thank you so much now let's start with some questions just remember stand up Use your stage voice. We don't have a roaming mic. For every introverted writer in the room has just I been told know. to do the thing they don't can. Don't be shy. Just they shout at all these the amazing most. authors. We're more scared of you. <laughs> we'll, we'll look down if you like. I think exhaustion and just pure exhaustion from work is a real factor and it's something that you have to build in and even not punish yourself for. Sometimes you're going to be too tired to do things because you're living a life and that's Okay. But something that always helped me with this is when I was, like, there's nothing worse. There's a lot of things, right? But there's nothing worse than when you're, um, you have nothing but time, but you don't know the next thing to put down. Mm. And 
when you like when you are stuck at a point like that being able to go off and do another task that has to get done for a little while is quite nice because you're like you might be doing your job you might be doing whatever your brain's still working and you're working out the thing that you like oh i must remember when i next get a chance i'm going to write that and you put a note about it in your phone and then when you next have a chance you know what you want to do and how you want to start and that like gets you out of the gate the best advice I was given in that regard was um, you need to create the circumstances that make it possible to write. And I don't mean that for your entire life. I just mean, for instance, when I was getting towards the end of writing Waiting for Elijah, I was working a, a very full-time job as an investigative journalist for the ABC up in Darwin. I was travelling a fair bit with that. My husband was travelling a fair bit with his work. We have an eight-year-old. But my husband very kindly agreed that Saturdays were my day, that that was the day that I could close the door in the spare bedroom and just write. And that made all the difference. That is what allowed me to get through that period of writing. Now, it may not be a whole day. Um, You may not have a spare room to lock yourself away in. But if you can do the – if it's you sit down, you you get – to have a shower at a certain time of day and you've got the next two hours to do it. You've got some little ritual that you do that gets you to the desk and then you just have that time, whatever that time is. But having a little ritual that gets you there or that sets the environment up for you doing your writing, I found is a really nice little psychological trick. When I was still working like regular jobs, it was like my secret life, you know, the book and time I was carving out for myself. In a way, you know, sometimes I miss that. You know, then I wasn't really taking myself seriously. It was just for me and it was this escapism, I guess. Like reading a really good book. I mean, I was trying to write one, you know. I mean, what I've been taught and really always come back to when I lose my way is just about staying in it. So even if it is just ten minutes in a notebook in a cafe or on the bus or before dinner with a glass of wine if someone else is cooking just carving out those little minutes and, and keeping that notebook with me and the notebook's something you can come back to always. But staying in it, so um, you know, like James is saying, when you're loading the dishwasher or the washing machine or whatever, that, oh, you know, you get that idea. You're sort of staying with it like a friend or a, a companion, secret life. I don't know. Um, doesn't necessarily require hours and hours at the desk. It's just keeping it close to you. I mean, I don't like intrusions at all. I don't, I'm not a very good switcher. I live alone and, yeah, so if someone comes to the door, I'm like, <laughs> you know, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know, but then I have to have this very small community so I have to have a polite conversation and deal with whatever it is and, um, or it can be impolite and unpleasant. So switching back, if I've been aggravated, um, I just try and walk or read or do something, a bridging activity before I go back to it. But, you know, it is hard. That is a hazard, being not present. Uh, in your real life and, and distracted for the writing. <laughs> yeah. But the, the more you do it, the more it's a reflex. Of... And as a mother who writes, you just, you have to leave the house. Like you can't do it. Like they're, the door does nothing. So you get out of there. You just go. The raptors in Jurassic Park, they know. <laughs> yeah, no, you leave. I've actually sat in my car. Like I've just I was, gone. I was just going to say, yeah. Vladimir Nabokov wrote, a, the, a very large part of the first draft of Lolita in the back seat of his car because he said it was the only quiet place he could find that had no drafts. Oh. Yeah. Alice Munro also used to write in her car in 15-minute slots between dropping the kids off at school and going to do the groceries. I know it sounds, you know, 
sandwichy, but I really empathise with you in that sort of limbo sense of like I'm not in one place or the other right now and I'm so conscious of being dragged back here that I don't know if I can commit myself to diving in there. I think it is partly you're quite wise to not dive in if you know you're going to get pulled out because it's just too frustrating, don't put yourself through it. But at the other hand, you have to be so hungry to be in there. You have to get to a point maybe of frustration or desperation or whatever it is to be in that world that you're trying to create that you just jump, like jumping into a cold swimming pool and just left, let the other go, let go of the control of the other bit for a little while. I mean, it is stealing time for yourself. So, you know, believing that that's a worthwhile thing to do, a thing you have to do for your creative health and, and for your own, I guess, mental health, you know, to do that, believing that that's okay is probably behind it. I have a deeply stupid suggestion, but it's what I use myself. So it's my deeply <laughs> stupid method. I have a theme song. Like I play, I play a song that like um, makes me always like, gets me like pumped up or whatever. But like just puts me in the headspace because I now associate the two activities after about a week. I think that's genius. Yeah, <laughs> it's I think like what you is know, the theme song? We're gonna have to put it into the podcast. Uh, what is it? Vincent Staples' War Ready, which is far too aggressive a hip hop track to really get you into comedy writing, but it's the one that works for me. But it's like you know, wrestlers get intro music. So why shouldn't we? Yeah. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Hashtag theme song. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, on that note, please come and join us over at the Mudgy Library. The authors will be selling copies of their book, signing them. They will take your praise. And <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. And we look forward to seeing you next year. If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's Mudgee, there's the National Young Writers Festival, we have Scone coming up, and the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney. So jump on onto our website. You can also find Rights for Women and Rights for Festivals in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up to date with all the latest information about the episodes for both on Facebook at Rights for Women or on Twitter and Instagram at W4W Podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals. They're a really important part of our writing, reading and living community.